The Great Divorce, A Dream, C.S. Lewis. Quote by George MacDonald. No, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Our out Satan must go. Every hair and feather. To Barbara Wall, best and most long-suffering of scribes. Preface. Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I have written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant, but in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or, that granted skill and patience and, above all, time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found, that mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. We are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet at the center. Rather, in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two, and each of those into two again, and at each fork you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a river, but like a tree. It does not move towards unity, but away from it, and the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection." Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. I do not think that all those who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it fresh from that point never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters of deserving power, or else not. It is still either or. If we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe, to be sure, that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there, beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries." In that sense, it will be true 
for those who have completed the journey and for no others to say that good is everything and heaven everywhere. But we, at the end of this road, must not try to anticipate that retrospective vision. If we do, we are likely to embrace the false and disastrous converse and fancy that everything is good and everywhere is heaven. But what, you ask, of earth? Earth, I think, will not be found by anyone to be in the end a very distinct place. I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. And earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. There there are only two things more to be said about this small book. Firstly, I must acknowledge my debt to a writer whose name I have forgotten and whom I read several years ago in a highly colored American magazine of what they call scientification. The unbendable and unbreakable quality of my heavenly matter was suggested to me by him, though he used the fancy for a different and most ingenious purpose. His hero, his hero traveled into the past and there very properly found raindrops that would pierce him like bullets and sandwiches that no strength could bite, because, of course, nothing in the past can be altered. I, with less originality, but, I hope, equal propriety, have transferred this to the eternal. If the writer of that story ever reads these lines, I ask him to accept my grateful acknowledgement. The second thing is this. I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course or I intended it to have, a moral. But the trans-mortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. C.S. Lewis, April 1945. The Great Divorce. Chapter 1. I seem to be standing in a busy queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain and always in evening twilight. Time seemed to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up and it is not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. And just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking had never brought me to the better parts of the town. However far I went, I found only dingy lodging houses, small tobacconists, hoardings from which posters hung in rags, windowless warehouses, good stations without trains, and bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. I never met anyone. But for the little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town seemed to be empty, I think that was why I attached myself to the queue. I had a stroke of luck right away. For just as I took my stand, a little waspish woman, who would have been ahead of me, snapped out at a man who seemed to be with her. Very well, then. I won't go at all. So there, and left the queue. Pray, Don't imagine, said the man in a very dignified voice, that I care about going in the least. I have only been trying to please you for peace sake. 
My own feelings are, of course, a matter of no importance. I quite understand that. And suiting the action to the word, he also walked away. Come, thought I, that's two places gained. I was now next to a very short man with a scowl, who glanced at me with an expression of extreme disfavor, and observed rather unnecessarily loudly to the man beyond him, This sort of thing really makes one think twice about going at all. What sort of thing, growled the other, a big beefy person. Well, said the short man, this is hardly the sort of society I'm used to as a matter of fact. Huh, said the big man, and then added with a glance at me, don't you find any sauce from him, mister? You're not afraid of him, are you? Then, seeing I made no move, he rounded suddenly on the short man and said, Not good enough for you, aren't we? Like your lip! Next moment, he had fetched the short man one on the side of the face that sent him sprawling into the gutter. Let him lay, let him lay, said the big man to no one in particular. I'm a plain man, that's what I am, and I got to have my rights same as anyone else, see? As the short man showed no disposition to rejoin the queue and soon began limping away, I closed up rather cautiously behind the big man and congratulated myself on having gained yet another step. A moment later, two young people in front of him also left us arm in arm. They were both so trousered, slender, giggly, and falsetto that I could be, I could be sure of the sex of neither, but it was clear that each for the moment preferred the other to the chance of a place in the bus. We shall never all get in, said a female voice with a whine in it from some four places ahead of me. Change places with you for five, Bob, lady, said someone else. I heard the clink of money and then a scream in the female voice mixed with roars of laughter from the rest of the crowd. The cheated woman leapt out of her place to fly at the man who had bilked her, but the others immediately closed up and flung her out. So what with one thing and another, the queue had reduced itself to manageable proportions long before the bus appeared. It was a wonderful vehicle, blazing with golden light, heraldically colored. The driver himself seemed full of light, and he used only one hand to drive with. The other he waved before his face, as if to fan away the greasy steam of the rain. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. Looks as if he had a good time of it, eh? Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple, I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? God, I'd like to give him one in the ear hole. I could see nothing in the countenance of the driver to justify all this, unless it were that he had a look of authority and seemed intent on carrying out his job. My fellow passengers fought like hens to get on board the bus, though there was plenty of room for us all. I was the last to get in. The bus was only half full, and I selected a seat at the back, well away from the others. But a tousle-haired youth at once came and sat down beside me. As he did so, we moved off. 
I thought you wouldn't mind my tacking on to you, he said, for I've noticed that you feel just as I do about the present company. Why on earth they insist on coming, I can't imagine. They won't like it at all when we get there, and they'd really be much more comfortable at home. It's different for you and me. Do they like this place? I asked. As much as they'd like anything, he answered. They've got cinemas and fish and chip shops and advertisements and all the sorts of things they want. The appalling lack of any intellectual life doesn't worry them. I realized as soon as I got here that there'd been some mistake. I ought to have taken the first bus, but I fooled about trying to wake people up here. I found a few fellows I'd known before and tried to form a little circle, but they all seemed to have sunk to the level of their surroundings. Even before we came here, I'd had some doubts about a man like Cyril Blello. I always thought he was working in a false idiom, but he was at least intelligent. One could get some criticism worth hearing from him, even if he was a failure on the creative side. But, ha but now he seems to have nothing left but his self-conceit. The last time I tried to read him some of my own stuff, but wait a minute, I'd just like you to look at it. Realizing with a shudder that what he was producing from his pocket was a thick wad of typewritten paper, I muttered something about not having it in my spectacles and exclaimed, Hello, we left the ground. It was true. Several hundred feet below us, already half-hidden in the rain and mist, the wet roofs of the town appeared, spreading without a break as far as the eye could reach. Chapter 2 I was not left very long at the mercy of the tousle-headed poet because another passenger interrupted our conversation. But before that happened, I had learned a good deal about him. He appeared to be a singularly ill-used man. His parents had never appreciated him, and none of the five schools at which he had been educated seemed to have made any provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he had been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with the maximum unfairness and absurdity. It was not until he reached the university that he began to recognize that all these injustices did not come by chance, but were the inevitable results of our economic system. Capitalism did not merely enslave the workers. It also vitiated taste and vulgarized intellect. Hence, our educational system, and hence the lack of recognition for new genius." This discovery had made him a communist, but when the war came along and he saw Russia in alliance with the capitalist governments, he had found himself once more isolated and had to become a conscientious objector. The indignities he suffered at this stage of his career had, he confessed, embittered him. He decided he could serve the cause best by going to America, but then America came into the war too. It was at this point that he suddenly saw Sweden as the home of a really new and radical art, but the various oppressors had given him no facilities for going to Sweden. There were money troubles. His father, who had never progressed beyond the most atrocious mental complacency and smugness of the Victorian epoch, 
was giving him a ludicrously inadequate allowance, and he had been very badly treated by a girl, too. He had thought her a really civilized and adult personality, and then she had unexpectedly revealed that she was a mass of bourgeois prejudices and monogamic instincts. Jealousy, possessiveness, was a quality he particularly disliked. She had even shown herself at the end to be mean about money. That was the last straw. He had jumped under a train. I gave a start, but he took no notice. Even then, he continued, ill luck had continued to dog him. He'd been sent to the gray town, but of course it was a mistake. I would find, he assured me, that all the other passengers would be with me on the return journey. But he would not. He was going to stay there. He felt quite certain that he was going where, at last, his finally critical spirit would no longer be outraged by an uncongenial environment where he would find recognition and appreciation. Meanwhile, since I hadn't got my glasses, he would read me the passage as about which Cyril Blello had been so insensitive. It was just then that we were interrupted. One of the quarrels, which were perpetually simmering in the bus, had boiled over, and for a moment there was a stampede. Knives were drawn, pistols were fired, but it all seemed strangely innocuous, and when it was over I found myself unharmed, though in a, in a different seat and with a new companion. He was an intelligent-looking man with a rather, rather bulbous nose and a bowler hat. I looked out of the windows. There were now... We, we were now so high that all below us had become featureless, but fields, rivers, and mountains I did not see. And I got the impression that the gray town still feel, filled the whole field of vision. It seems the deuce of a town, I volunteered, and that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a la much larger population? Not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. But he's been there 24 hours. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If so, he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of the town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've got to think a house. You've only got to think a house, and there it is. That's how the town keeps on growing. Leaving more and more empty streets? That's right. And time's sort of odd here. That place where we caught the bus is thousands of miles from the civic center where all the newcomers arrive from Earth. All the people you've met were living near the bus stop, but they'd taken centuries of our time to get there by gradual removals. And what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who came from Earth to your town even longer ago. That's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. 
astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses, where those old ones live, millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away. Would they get to the bus stop in time if they ever set out? Well, theoretically, but it'd be a distance of light years, and they wouldn't want it want to by now. Not those old chaps like Tamburlaine and Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or Henry V. Wouldn't want to? That's right. The nearest of those old ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They'd started long before I came, of course, but I was there when they came back. About fifteen thousand years of our time it took them. We've picked out the house by now. Just a little pinprick of light, and nothing else near it for millions of miles. But they got there. That's right. He'd built himself a huge house, all in the empire style. Rows of windows flaming with light. Though it only shows as a pinprick from where I live, did they see Napoleon? That's right. They went up and looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was there, all right. What was he doing? Walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested, and muttering to himself all the time. It was Solt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop it. From the vibrations, I gathered that the bus was still moving, but there was now nothing to be seen from the windows, which confirmed this—nothing but gray void above and below. Then, the town will go on spreading indefinitely. I said, "That's right," said the intelligent man, "unless someone can do something about it." How do you mean? Well, as a matter of fact, between you and me and the wall, that's my job at the moment. What's the trouble about this place? Not that people are quarrelsome. That's only human nature, and was always the same even on Earth. The trouble is that they have no needs. You get everything you want. Not very good quality, of course, but by just imagining it. That's why it never costs any trouble to move to another street or build another house. In other words, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. If they needed real shops, chaps would have to stay near where the real shops were. If they needed real houses, they'd have to stay where builders were. It's scarcity that enables a society to exist. Well, that's where I come from. Come in. That's where I come in. I'm not going on this trip for my health. As far as that goes, I don't think it would suit me up there. But if I can come back with some real commodities, anything at all that you could really bite or drink or sit on, why, at once you'd get a demand down in our town. I'd start a little business. I'd have something to sell. You'd soon get people coming to live near. Centralization. Two fully inhabited streets would accommodate the people that are now spread 
over a million square miles of empty streets. I'd make a nice little profit and be a public benefactor as well. You mean if they had to live together, they'd gradually learn to quarrel less? Well, I don't know about that. I dare say they could be kept a bit quieter. You'd have a chance to build up a police force, knock some kind of discipline into them. Anyway, here he dropped his voice. It'd be better, you know. Everyone admits that. Safety in numbers. Safety from what? I began, but my companion nudged me to be silent. I changed my question. But look here, said I. If they can get everything just by imagining it, why would they want any real things, as you call them? Eh. Eh? Oh, well. They'd like houses that really kept out the rain. Their present houses don't. Well, of course not. How could they? What the devil is the use of a building then? What is the devil? What the devil is the use of building them then? The intelligent man put his head closer to mine. Safety again, he muttered. At least the feeling of safety. It's all right now, but later on, you understand. What? Said I, almost involuntarily sinking in my own voice, sinking my own voice to a whisper. He articulated noiselessly, as if expecting that I understood lip reading. I put my ear up close to his mouth. Speak up, I said. It will be dark presently. He mouthed. You mean that the evening is really going to turn into a night in the end? He nodded. What's that got to do with it? Said I. Well. No one wants to be out of doors when that happens. Why? His reply was so furtive that I had to ask him several times to repeat it. When he had done so, being a little annoyed, as one so often is with whispers, I replied without remembering to lower my voice. Who are they? I asked. And what are you afraid they'll do to you? And why should they come out when it's dark? And what protection could an imaginary house give if there was any danger? Here, shouted the big man. Who's talking all that stuff? You stop your whispering, you two, if you don't want a hiding, see? Spreading rumors, that's what I call it. You shut your face, Ikey, see? Quite right. Scandalous. Ought to be prosecuted. How did they get on the bus? growled the passengers. A fat, clean-shaven man who sat on the seat in front of me leaned back and addressed me in a cultured voice. Excuse me, he said, but I couldn't help overhearing parts of your conversation. It is astonishing how these primitive superstitions linger on. I beg your pardon? Oh, God bless my soul. That's all it is. There is not a shred of evidence that this twilight is ever going to turn into a night. There has been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles. I am surprised that you haven't heard of it. All the nightmare fantasies of our ancestors are being swept away. What we now see in this subdued and delicate half-light is the promise of the dawn, the slow turning of a whole nation towards the light, slow and imperceptible, of course, and not through eastern windows only. When daylight comes, comes in the light. When daylight comes, comes in the light. And that, and that passion for real commodities, which our friend speaks our friend speaks of is only materialism you know it's retrogressive earthbound a hankering for matter but we look on the spiritual city 
for with all its faults it is spiritual as a nursery in which the creative functions of man, now freed from the clogs of matter, begin to try their wings, a sublime thought. Hours later there came a change. It began to grow light in the bus. The grayness outside the windows turned from mud color to mother of pearl, then to faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. We seemed to be floating in a pure vacancy. There were no lands, no sun, no stars in sight, only the radiant abyss. I let down the window beside me. Delicious freshness came in for a second, and then... "'What the hell are you doing?' shouted the intelligent man, leaning roughly across me and pulling the window sharply up. "'Want us to all catch our death of cold?' "'Hit him a biff,' said the big man. I glanced round the bus. Though the windows were closed and soon muffled, the bus was full of light. It was cruel light. I shrank from the faces and forms by which I was surrounded. They were all fixed faces.' full not of possibilities, but impossibilities, some gaunt, some bloated, some glaring with idiotic ferocity, some drowned beyond recovery in dreams, but all in one way or another distorted and faded. One had a feeling that they might fall to pieces at any moment if the light grew much stronger. Then there was a mirror on the end wall of the bus. I caught sight of my own, and still... The light grew.